You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, and this is Method to the Madness, a show coming at you from the Public Affairs Department here at CalEx, celebrating the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar, and today we have UC Berkeley's own Wajahat Ali. Wajahat Ali is a lawyer, a playwright, an essayist. Uh, He's appeared in the Washington Post, The Guardian, Salon, Atlantic. He's a consultant to the U.S. State Department uh, and currently also is host of Al Jazeera America's social media-driven talk show, The Stream. And Wajahat's joined us via phone, myself and my partner, Lisa Kiefer, over phone to talk about the Muslim American experience in America. And first off, we talked about how he grew up as a Muslim American in the Bay Area. You know, I, I was, I am essentially a multi-hyphenated, multicultural kid uh, born and raised in the Bay Area who, uh, you know, I'm an American Muslim of Pakistani descent. And in very much, I am a product of both old school and new school America, right? Old school America means a traditional immigrant story. New school America, you know, having to dance the fault lines of this uh, minority-majority country, which I think uh, is the major uh, cultural shift that we are kind of uh, embracing and rejecting as a country right now, which will really uh, speak volumes about how we evolve or devolve as a nation in the next 20 years. And for me, you know, growing up as this awkward uh, fat, and in our tradition, uh, South Asian tradition, you never say fat, you say quote-unquote healthy. I was a very, very, very healthy, awkward son of Pakistani immigrants whose parents thought it would be hilarious to teach him only three words of English. And, you know, I had turmeric and lentil stains on my shirt. And, um, you know, I ended up going to all-boys Bellarmine Catholic High School. where, And then I went to UC Berkeley where I ended up uh, ironically graduating with an English major. So if you actually kind of look at my background, it is very an American background, but told through a very culturally specific lens of an American that uh, is seen right now in this moment in history as an outsider, as an other, as a threat, as an antagonist, you know, the Muslim boogeyman. And I think what's interesting is this is nothing really new. If you kind of really look back at American history, this has happened before to the LGBT community. It still happens. Mexican immigrants, African Americans, Japanese Americans, Irish Catholics, and Jewish Americans. And for me, just by virtue of growing up, I had a decision to make whether or not I was going to share my story and engage with people or whether I was going to compartmentalize these different aspects of my uh, of my identity, right, and be ashamed of my brownness or be ashamed of my Musliminess or be ashamed of my Americanness. And, you know, I just decided early on, I think by virtue, by early on I mean like eventually you grow up and you realize I'm always going to be a dorky outlier. Like I'm never going to be like Travis, the dude who gets like Jessica, the like, you know, the hot white girl and gets invited to like join the all-star track team or football team. Uh, I'm always going to be that awkward, multi-syllabic, healthy kid. And I think somewhere in college, I, I made peace with the fact that I'm never going to fit into this model uh, narrative of a quote-unquote America that didn't represent me. And I was just going to be myself and let my freak flag fly. And the reason why I mention that is kind of this was a gradual evolution, right? Because I was always this outlier. But I was always this guy who wanted to share my stories, my culture, my identity, my experiences with my classmates. And I always did. And growing up in the Bay Area, like you guys know, it's such an ethnically diverse community that you're forced to interact with people who are different than you. And I kind of was innately, if you will, a storyteller without me realizing it. And I did it purely for the joy of doing it, number one. Number two, being an awkward, dorky, fat kid, you do it for survival. Because anyone who's grown up fat is listening to this. You know, elementary school every day is like World War Three. 
and you literally are not the fastest kid on the block because you're like fat, but you can be the, the, the sharpest kid and you can be the wittiest kid. So it was also a good survival, survival tool and, uh, you know, to win over my bullies. And number three, I just kind of really enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I could make people laugh and I could tell stories. And kind of this innate trait that I had growing up through childhood, you know, just telling stories, making movies with my friends, uh, writing small sketches, uh, was the DNA, essentially, without me realizing it, uh, of what I do now as a profession. And I think storytelling is the key way for us to kind of bridge the divide that exists not only within America, but actually what's happening, quote-unquote, between the West and Islam. Well, well, Wash, I have a question about um, your impetus, because I know Ishmael Reed, and I understand that he really should be given a little credit here for getting you kind of on the right path to your real passion when he asked you to write a play for his class about the Pakistani-American experience after 9-11. I think that's a great story, and um, and then it led to your play. Can you talk about the play that came out of that? Yeah, I've been very lucky and privileged in my life for, for many reasons, but one of the privileges I've had is I've had great mentors, and also my parents have not been stereotypical South Asian immigrant parents. They've also They've always encouraged me. Uh, since my childhood, they spotted a talent, and they always told me to write. Ishmael Reed, for those of you who don't know, is a MacArthur Genius uh, Pulitzer Prize-nominated you know, titan who's living in Oakland uh, with his family. Uh, Carla Blank, also his partner in crime for the past 40 years. He was my English professor uh, back in the day when I was at UC Berkeley as an English major. And in fall, September 2001, I happened to be in a short story writing class and after the two towers fell, he took me aside and said, you know, I've never I've never really heard about the Pakistani-American experience or the Muslim-American experience. Even though this is a short story writing class, I think you are actually a natural playwright. I think dialogue and characters are your strengths. Don't waste your time in this class. I'm going to take you out of this class. You're going to have to write me 20 pages of a play to pass the class. Okay, great. Go write it. And I was like, oh, my God, please let me do anything except this. And the play that came as a result of him quite literally forcing me to write it is The Domestic Crusaders, which is an old-school kitchen drama in the form of American dramas like, you know, Long Day's Journey and The Night, Death of a Salesman, Fences. Uh, one day in the life of three generations of a Pakistani-American Muslim family, six characters, uh, the grandfather, the immigrant parents who have achieved the American dream, and their three American-born children, all forced to reconvene in the house for before the youngest son's 21st birthday. And Ishmael literally kept at it for like a year, telling me to you know to to, to finish this play. I started it for my 21st birthday uh, in the fall of 2001. I submitted my 20 pages to pass the damn class, and then I finally finished it for my 23rd birthday. Again, after I graduated from college, and Ishmael kept at it, and, and then he handed it over to his wife Carla Blank, who became the director and dramaturge of this play. And this small little play that had its origin in UC Berkeley in the Bay Area and then at Mehran Indian Restaurant and Johnny Restaurant in Newark, California, and then at, you know, Oakland Library. Then went on to Berkeley Repertory Theater, then went on to New York, then I went on to the Kennedy Center, then I went on to London and got published uh, by McSweeney's, which is, again, a Bay Area staple uh, mm-hmm. in 2000, I think, 10 or 2011 as the first major Muslim-American play that got published. So that type of mentorship was key. And the story behind the play, I truncated, like, 13 years in one minute is really kind of remarkable. And, uh, you know, we, we, you know, just to show you how sometimes you can be a little bit ahead of the curve. Ishmael has always been a bit ahead of the curve in spotting talent, yeah. I think, and spotting trends. 
And he always told me, because I was a bit discouraged, like 2003, 2004, I'm like, man, I thought the play would pick up, but it didn't. He said, he said, listen, America isn't ready yet, but just wait and watch. All these other plays that are coming out now, they're going to fade. They'll be talking about your play 10 years from now. Just just you wait. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, he, sometimes he can be very hyperbolic with the people that he praises. And then just 20, like a month ago, University of Maryland tweets out uh, a photo. A professor from the English department tweets out a photo, like, teaching and performing with all these domestic crusaders with all these white actors playing the Pakistani American family members and it's part oh of this God. curriculum. And University of Minnesota teaches it each year and then like London's doing it. You know what I'm saying? You're listening to Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. This is an interview over the phone with Wajahat Ali, the host of Al Jazeera America's The Stream, a social media-driven talk show. He's also a author and playwright uh, Bay Area native and UC Berkeley grad. Uh, we continued our conversation, myself and Lisa Keeper with him, talking about him getting his play published and pilot shopping in Hollywood. Is The impetus to get it published was based on the promise I made to an Egyptian budding scholar in 2009. This Egyptian scholar was getting her PhD done, and she says, I want to write about domestic crusaders, specifically American Muslim art in response post-9-11, you know, when it comes to cultural creation, but I need all my works that I write about to be published. And for some strange reason, I said, don't worry, by 2010, I'll get it published. And then, like, <laughs> like fast forward. So, yeah, so the play's getting published, right? I'm like, oh, crap. And so that led to my, you know, friendship with Dave Eggers and McSweeney, you know, on a whim, emailing them saying that they wanted to publish the play. And I made a vow to myself. I remember when I was, like, uh, 25, I said, I will get the, pay, the play published by the time I turned 30. And McSweeney's called me and said to come over, and I held the copy, the first copy of The Domestic Crusaders a day after I turned 30, November 2nd, 2010. So Congratulations. <laughs> so somehow, you know, it was interesting. Like, it, it took an Egyptian scholar, uh, and, and I think there was also an Algerian scholar in London who have written about it and done their thesis on it to kind of get me off my ass to get it published. It gets published here in McSweeney's in the Bay Area and it gets, it gets being taught now kind of across America and across the Atlantic. So it's, it's a it's wild great. story, but uh, props yeah. to Ishmael Reed so probably. The, the TV show pilot that you've written with Dave Eggers, is it, it's based on the Domestic Crusaders, correct? No, it's a completely original idea that we had. Okay, and um, I read the Atlantic article, and it sounds like you've pulled back from HBO because you didn't, it didn't really, they, they were taking it into an area you didn't want to go. And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how is your story different from the TV show All American Muslim? And, and, and why did you guys feel that maybe America isn't ready for it yet? Or I don't know. No, no. So the the we we still think America is ready for it. We think America is. It's not domestic crusaders. We actually were ahead of the curve because I think the TV show is about Yemeni American Muslims. It's about the American Muslim community of the Bay Area, and the lead character is MJ Mujaddid Al Ghazali, a Yemeni American immigrant who becomes one of the fastest uh, rising detectives of the SFPD. Now we came up with this idea like three and a half years ago. Anyone who's been paying attention to international news, there's a country which is like in all the headlines right now. Uh, right. Yemen. Um, and HBO was a fantastic partner, and they really dug the idea that we pitched. However, we wrote this kind of during the heyday of Homeland and Walking Dead, and, and, and we kind of realized by our second draft that I think HBO, just creatively, wanted to go into more genre-driven, genre-driven shows, and ours was and remains a very unique, different type of beast. 
it, it has its own pace, it has its own tone, it has its own sense of humor. It, it's not, it's something deliberately unlike what you've seen on television, right? Like television. Yeah, but I, you know, I would think HBO would go for something like that. They, they do choose odd, you know, they're, they're kind of um, ahead of the curve in that way. No, sometimes it doesn't work. Maybe, you know, look, two things could have happened. Maybe this was their cup of tea. They pass on good shows all the time, and good people pass on good shows. Or B, yeah. maybe they thought it sucked. And so Dave and I were like, maybe our pilot sucks. And But secretly, <laughs> deep down, we knew, you know, secretly, deep down, we knew it didn't. You know, it's one of those things, you know if it's good or not. And so I'm kind of a stubborn piece of crap, if you will. And I, if I believe in something, and same with Dave, we don't, we don't let it die. And so we've been pushing it. And once we finally published it on you know, on McSweeney, I think two months ago, then I wrote an essay about it at the Atlantic. It just seems that anyone who's read the piece, right? Like even in Hollywood, I got some meetings with Hollywood agents. They all like the pilot. That's the funny thing. No one says the pilot's bad. Actually, everyone digs it. The question remains: Is there a quote unquote market for it? And I think that's the problem with mainstream, you know, media, mainstream Hollywood, is that there is this fear, is this hesitation that okay, if you have a, I'll give you an example, a totally different story. But I was pitching another pilot, and basically all these you know, studio heads and agents, power agents, met, and they're like, great idea, but we can't find a bankable Arab-American lead. And I'm like, you don't need a bankable Arab-American lead. You just need someone who's good. But that just goes to show you the mindset of not only Hollywood, yeah. but also Wall Street. You know, the color that matters in the end is green. So right now, and like they kept pitching some names, which was hilarious. Like, how about Aziz Ansari? I'm like, I love Aziz Ansari. He's not a character. For, he's not Yeah, he's, he's really a San Francisco police detective. He really looks. Like, <laughs> yeah, if Aziz listen to this, I got nothing against Aziz. I'm sure he can pull it off. But uh, but the point I'm trying to say is that it came down to that bankability. And so Dave and I, to this day, I'm like, just have faith in it. Make a pilot. Anyone who's read the script, like everyone who's read the script, knock on wood, said, this is dope, this is unique, this is needed, this is necessary, this is really good. So I'm going to still push it, and now we finally have interest uh, a couple yeah. years after it was written. So let's hope. Uh, let's cross our fingers. I just want to get a you pilot made out of it. You're listening to Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, and we're speaking with Wajahat Ali, a author, lawyer, playwright, essayist in places like The Washington Post and The Guardian, Salon, Atlantic. He's an expert in Muslim-American affairs and host of Al Jazeera America's social media-driven talk show, The Stream. And Lisa Kiefer and I interviewed him over the phone, and we talked about how did he take the leap from graduating with a law degree to becoming a commentator on TV. I graduated from law school, uh, I think I was about 26, it was 2007, and you guys remember what happened in 2008, and that was right at the cusp of this, you know, this, this great recession, and I could not find a job to save my life, despite my best efforts, and despite like all these big companies taking a lot of interest in me. So I moved back to my my house, which is my parents' house, and I'm like literally sitting in my college bedroom, broke as a licensed attorney, you know, who just turned 27. And my father every day used to put five dollars in my wallet because he said, <laughs> "No man should be without five dollars." And uh, you know, I'm getting South Asian groceries for my mom, and I'm feeling miserable and like I'm feeling pity. And essentially, I spent the first half of the day like cranking out resumes. I really worked hard; just nothing stuck, nothing stuck. And uh, on a whim, just out of like you know madness, I'm like, why don't I just crank out a- an essay? Uh, and at that time, if you guys remember, the Blackwater scandal was all the news in 2007. 
and Blackwater was a private military contractor, uh, still is, that had committed a lot of atrocities in Iraq. And I'm like, wow, in my second year of law school, I actually wrote a paper on private military firms in Iraq and the legality of such firms in Iraq. So I said, since I know about this, why don't I transform my 30-page paper into like a five-page essay? I wrote the essay. I sent it to Counterpunch on a whim. Counterpunch published it and said, this was really good. You know, anytime you get something else, send it our way. I said, word? I said, okay. So then next week, I sent them something else. They said, fantastic. Send us something else. So the next week, I sent them something else. And then there was another website started from a UC Berkeley grad, Shahid Lamanullah, called altmuslim.com. He saw Domestic Crusaders in its first incarnation at the Open Public Library, and he followed my career, and he said, hey, if you ever want to write for us, write for us. So I did. In the period of about six months on a whim, I think I ended up cranking out like 50 pieces. I was like the Tasmanian devil. I was a man possessed. And I didn't know what I was doing, right? Like I just literally had a broken yellow Ethernet cable attached to a dying Fujitsu laptop in my college bedroom <laughs> of my parents' home with turmeric stains on my shirt. And I, I literally cranked out article after article, interview after interview. And about six to seven months in, I got this invitation at the uh, UC Berkeley, not the Berkeley one, what's that Graduate Theology Center right by UC Berkeley, right? GTU. And they're mm -hmm. like, hey, Carnegie has given us a, a funding to host like something on journalism, and can you come as a new media journalist and talk about new media to these old school journalists? And I'm like, who am I? Why are you inviting me? And they're like, oh, because you're a new media journalist. And I'm like, I am? Okay. I had no idea. So they started referring to me as a new media journalist and as an interviewer and as an essayist. And then, you know, at that time, I was like, who am I? I'm just one guy living in Fremont. I'm not going to do commentary pieces. But on a whim, on a whim, Asif Ali Zardari, who became elected uh, president, well, was you know, chosen as president because the party won in Pakistan, uh, he hugged, if you remember, Sarah Palin. This was like 2008. And so I was sitting there, and I'm like, I've got to write something. So on a whim, I cranked out that kind of satirical but serious uh, thousand-word essay. And I had this one contact from The Guardian. I sent it to him. I'm like, he's never going to respond to me. Richard Adams from The Guardian responds back within two hours and says, I love this essay. I'm going to publish it tomorrow. Send me any other pitches you got. So I'm like, okay. And so now I became a commentator. And so one thing led to another, and then I made the leap to, like, essayist. To what was, the, what was your stuff. theme in that? I'm curious what, what your theme was in that essay. My theme was basically I, I used this very awkward social interaction as a metaphor for the dysfunctional, volatile relationship between the United States and Pakistan. And I just I kind of put it in the context of modern uh, history. Uh, and I kind of had some tongue-in-cheek comments about Asif Ali Zardari and Sarah Palin as political neophytes who somehow might be able to control nuclear nations. I thought that was a terrifying prospect for the future of the world, both for the United States <laughs> and uh, Pakistan. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it was, it was grounded in reality and in facts. And so as this was happening, I, I was also a solo attorney paying my bills. As this was happening, I also made the, the vow, this was 2008, that by 2009, 9-11, I would premiere my play, The Domestic Crusaders, in New York. And the reason why I said that was I said this dude named Barack Hussein Obama might become president. And maybe that play I wrote six years ago might be more valuable and, uh, and topical now than ever before. So sitting there, like literally with my broken-ass yellow Ethernet cable, I somehow plotted this, this ambitious vision. And long story short, you know, I ended up merging these three, four careers into one, and everyone at that time laughed at me. They're like, you can only be one thing. You can only be an attorney 
or you can be a writer, or you can be a journalist, or a blogger, or a playwright. You can be any of the above. You can be all of the above. And I really rejected that. I said, I think I'm going to try all of the above. And that's lo and not, behold, that's it was kind of what I'm doing. Yeah, and so I hope I was able, and that's why I kind of made the leap. It wasn't necessarily a leap, Ali. It was like this long, lonely, uphill trudge uh, towards the towards uh, synthesizing, if you will, all these interests. But if you kind of think about it, it's all anchored in storytelling as well, how we start off this conversation. And that's kind yeah. of how I made the transition. It took a couple of years, you, but I finally pulled it off. You wrote, this incredible, you wrote this incredible report that really called out some people that, called Fear, Inc., Roots of the Islamophobia Network in America. That was, I guess, that was uh, more political than, well, it's all political, but that put you in the spotlight. Yeah, see, that was something that, you know, and that happened as a result of all this crazy stuff that I just described for the past five minutes. It's interesting how the world works out. Center for American Progress is a, you know, a think tank in Washington, D.C. Many people call it, you know, quote, unquote, Obama's think tank. It's very, you know, progressive, uh, Democrat-friendly. And I knew some of those folks who were following my storyteller, essayist, playwright career. And in the summer, uh, excuse me, in the spring of 2000. 11, they're like, hey, we want to think outside the box. Would you be willing to lead the research on this project that we have of exposing what we call the Islamophobia Network in America? Because, you know, part of my essays and commentary, they knew that I was kind of exposing these anti-Muslim memes and bigots who were trumpeting, scapegoating, and fear-mongering, especially after the 2010 Ground Zero Mosque controversy that was neither at Ground Zero nor a mosque. And they said, you know, you're a non-DC guy, maybe you should lead it. And I said, sure, it sounds like an interesting project. I've never done it before. Why not? And this small little report that was supposed to be a 20-page expose, I ended up, it was supposed to take me two months. It ended up taking me six months. And my first draft was like 180 pages. And Center for American Progress looked at it, and they're like, you're crazy. Like, they literally looked at it. Like, I mapped it out, right? They're like, you're nuts. We don't believe you. And they did an audit of it for like two months. Like, okay, okay, you're right. And their report ended up being this 138-page report an investigative report called Fear, Inc., The Roots of the Islamophobia Network in America that was published in August 2011. And you knock on wood, I'm very proud of it. It, ends up, it ended up being a seminal report, kind of a very foundational report. A lot of people still use to this day. Yeah, it's used it, as a resource everywhere. Yeah, it exposed a lot of these players, who we yeah. can name in a second, and a lot of these memes that have unfortunately come from the fringe that have been mainstreamed, especially after the election of Barack Obama and especially after, like, you know, the 2010 Grand Zero Mosque controversy, such as, you know, Sharia as a threat to America, uh, you know, uh, mosques are Trojan horses, there's no mm -hmm. such thing as peaceful Islam, uh, traditional Islam is radical Islam, if you're a practicing Muslim, you cannot be a loyal American. You know, these fringe memes uh, we saw, we just saw recently, 2012 uh, elections, nearly every single Republican presidential candidate ran with the anti-Sharia meme for both money and votes. We just saw, like last month, Governor of Louisiana, Bobby Jindal. He followed the lead of an Islamophobe that we uh, uh, outed, Steve Emerson, and said there's no go zones in America. These Sharia-infested zones where Muslims have taken over and they've like, you know, like, apparently sprayed their Sharia everywhere and non-Muslims are not allowed to come. And, you know, he's doubled, you know, he's doubled down on this rhetoric, and it, he knows better, but he's doubling down on this rhetoric because he knows it plays to his base. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, President Obama is a Muslim, and, and so forth and so forth. So what we did is I mapped it out, 
uh, we made it very digestible, connected the dots, traced the funding, and showed the genesis, quite literally the genesis, of how a very few interconnected, incestuous group of people, very few people, were able to create and then mainstream uh, these fictitious threats that seek to marginalize uh, American Muslims from America's political, civic, and social sphere, and how it is ultimately dangerous not only to America's cultural fabric, but also threatens our national security. And as you and we've seen example after example, and thankfully, that has become a foundational resource for not just Americans, but also in Europe right now. I mean, you see what's happening. So I'm very yeah. glad about that. I'm proud, I'm proud about the report. You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, and this is Methods of the Madness. We're interviewing Wajahat Ali, UC Berkeley graduate and lawyer, playwright, essayist, and host of Al Jazeera's social media-driven talk show, The Stream. He joined us via a phone bridge from Washington, D.C. to talk about the Muslim-American experience in America, and we asked him about what he thinks the biggest challenges are facing Muslim-Americans today. Uh, I want to put this in uh, proper context. I think American Muslims uh, as a community, if you really look at it uh, from a bird's eye view, uh, it's a success story. Like We have tremendous privileges, uh, unlike other minority groups that have gone through the similar hazing. Yes, we have deep, unique problems, and we, you know the Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry, especially the fact that now it's at a global scale, the local becomes the national, becomes you know the global story with, with a tweet or a YouTube video. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're the most diverse religious community in America. American Muslim women are the most educated women of any religious uh, group, right behind Jewish American women. Uh, as a group, we're, you know, educated, uh, above average income, uh, you know, quote-unquote moderate, mainstream, whatever that means, but it's good words, uh, you know, renounce violent extremism. So many of us have achieved, if you will, the American dream. I think the problem internally for American Muslims is whether or not we choose to be spectators or participants. And what I mean by that is oftentimes, especially with the immigrant communities, there was a don't rock the boat, keep your head down, have a checklist of success, and follow the safe path. Um, and oftentimes we kind of, if you will, uh, helped this marginalization of American Muslims happen by not investing in storytelling. 90% it's, uh, of American Muslims, and when they did a poll in about 2001, were either doctors, engineers, or business. So that leaves about 10 to 11% for teachers, activists, politicians, journalists, directors, uh, you know, and so forth. And I think if you deprive yourself uh, of the opportunity to be a cultural creator, if you deprive yourself of the opportunity to become a participant, if you deprive yourself of becoming a protagonist of not only your own narrative, but the American narrative, that at the end of the day, you can kind of only blame yourself for being on the margins or being a footnote or being a sidekick or being an antagonist. And I think the, the, the major struggle for American Muslims is how to not lose hope in uh, themselves and not to lose hope in America, especially when they are facing an uphill challenge where it seems they, they seem besieged by so many problems. It's like an avalanche. Uh, every every step, uh, everywhere you go, you want to get out of the muck and then ISIS. You want to get out of the muck and Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula. You want to get out of the muck and then some lone radical, and then you're always defensive, right? You're always interrogated. You're always asked to prove that you're a moderate. You're always asked to prove your loyalty. And I think it could be easily exhausting for an American Muslim, and it could easily be defeating. And I think that struggle is to have faith in the best best aspects of ourselves and the best aspects of this country and the best aspects of our community members 
to kind of unite uh, in solidarity over shared values and really invest proactively as storytellers. And sometimes that requires bum-rushing the show and doing things on your own, right? If, if quote, quote, mainstream media or mainstream politics does not have you as a protagonist, what are you going to do? Are you going to drink your chai as a spectator, whine and complain? Or are you going to use your privileges, because we are very privileged, to throw down and bum-rush the show? And it might take a little bit of time, but at least you move forward. And I think that's something that's, that's very pivotal, not only for a sense of uh, identity, not only for a sense of swagger, not only for a sense of confidence, not only for a sense of well-being, not only a sense of creating a positive, proactive narrative for this generation, future generations, but I also think for countering this anti-Muslim bigotry that is poisonous for our national security. And I also think it, it provides a microcosm of what America will have to do if it wants to emerge as the best version of itself as it approaches a minority-majority country. The way America treats its minorities and the way we treat our marginalized communities it, it will be the fault line of how we will either emerge or fail, I think, as a nation. I think that's a big test. That was Wajahat Ali on Calix's Method to the Madness, a 30-minute talk show every other Friday that explores the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. Wajahat is a UC Berkeley graduate, a lawyer, a playwright, essayist, consultant to the U.S. State Department, and host of Al Jazeera America's social media-driven talk show, The Stream. Very proud of the work he's doing to communicate the Muslim American experience in America. If you want to follow more of Wajahat's work, follow him on Twitter with his handle at Wajahat Ali. That's W-A-J-A-H-A-T-A-L-I on Twitter. That's it for our program today. Thanks for joining, and special thanks to my partner in crime, Lisa Kiefer, for setting up this interview and making it all happen. With that, we'll turn it back over to the music. Have a great Friday, everybody.